Hey everyone, Stephen here. This week, Catherine Jigger and I were in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest Eco recording a live show. And the show itself went great. We had a packed house and we got to see a lot of listeners. And I had hoped to bring you the show as people in the room heard it. Unfortunately, the AV folks at the event had a mixer problem and the audio feed they were recording ended up being completely unusable. And they found that out after they had recorded. So we had to get creative and use audio from a recorder near the PA system in the room. The audio you're hearing is definitely not optimal, but since we packed up our bags and went to the event to record a show, I wanted to share it with the rest of you. I'm really sorry for the hollow sound here. We did our best to clean it up, given the circumstances. So here it is, and thanks to everyone who showed up for the live show. And for everyone else, we'll be back with a regular episode next week. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw live at South by Southwest Eco. As usual, we're gathered to discuss and debate the top news stories in the sector. And we come to you at a strange point in the energy transition here in America. Disgraced mining executive Donald Blankenship sits in jail, claiming to be a political prisoner in the war on coal. Disgraced presidential candidate Donald Trump sits alone on his creepy little tour bus as one of the only world leaders, I shudder just using those words, as one of the only potential world leaders to deny the existence of climate change. And the cute and cuddly coal plant worker Ken Bone emerged from this week's presidential debate as an unlikely American hero, asking the candidates ever so politely, how will you meet America's energy needs in an environmentally friendly way? while making sure that I still have a job. Well, Ken, this week's show is for you. We're going to try to answer that exact question as we figure out this messy energy transition that we're all in the middle of. So let me turn to my regular co-hosts who are with me on this journey every step of the way. Catherine Hamilton is a partner with 38 North Solutions. She's based in Washington, D.C., where I used to be based. And uh, she is our regular policy wonk and uh, our, our grid wonk as well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be in Austin. Um, I feel like I'm channeling Austin. Last week um, in DC, I went to see a lot of Love and Robert O'Keefe together. So many, many other times. And I know their Aggies are probably long horns in here, but they're awesome. And then my husband tonight, while I'm flying back up there, is going to see Sleep at the Wheel. So we've been all in on Austin. All right. Nice. Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. He is in New York City. He is our business model expert, a finance expert, and he sure knows how to throw a few grenades. Figure, how are you? <laughs> Good. He definitely threw a couple of Jaeger bomb grenades last night. All right, let's go through the lineup of what we're going to be talking about today. So first up, Revolution Now. The Department of Energy released its latest progress report on solar, wind, batteries, and LEDs. And even for those who follow the space, the data is pretty remarkable. How optimistic should recent progress make us? Then America's post-coal future. Can we leave coal behind without leaving people behind? People like Ken Bone. And if you haven't figured out who Ken Bone is right now, just get on your phone and Google You'll find out pretty quickly. Finally, the federal government is throwing its weight behind autonomous vehicles. Once we stop operating coal plants, are we going to stop operating our own cars? And will electric cars just replace those coal plants? And then, of course, at the end of the show, we'll tell you something that you may not know. So 
So let's discuss that Department of Energy report, which just came out, um, showing blistering cost reductions for leading clean energy technology. This is an update to a report that they've been doing for the last few years. Since 2008, wind costs have fallen 41%. Distributed and utility-scale PV have fallen 54% and 64%, respectively. Lithium-ion battery costs have fallen 73%, and LEDs have fallen 94%. Pretty astonishing. So the optimists among us might call this a revolution. DOE certainly does. The skeptics might agree, hey, it's progress, but it's not nearly enough. It doesn't get us anywhere close to achieving the two degree C target that we're all um, trying to achieve after the Paris climate negotiations. So where are we at in this transition? And that's what we want to kind of debate now. Um, Catherine, in which camp do you fall? Are you an optimist about where we're at when you look at what's happening? Of course I am. <laughs> that's true. That's it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what's extraordinary is that the costs have come down, and there's no stopping it. So they expect 16 to 33% more cost reduction per PV um, by 2020. Um, and then, you know, and this is, this is in the context of electricity costs not going up. So not only are costs coming down for renewable energy technologies, and we're having this big PC change, the electricity costs can I actually, I'm going to stop here because I'm an audio file. Can you just bring the, yeah, make sure that the, we want to hear you on the recording so that now can people listen back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and renewable energy has outpaced, in production capacity, has, out, has doubled um, the capacity of the So all of these extraordinary results from the Department of Energy feed into what's actually been Yeah. And we were talking about this before the show started, and I guess the big question is, how much credit can DOE take for this? Um, Jigger, you have mixed thoughts on that, right? I mean, no, I, this comes from decades of work in R&D that eventually kind of pushed into the deployment realm. Uh, DOE certainly deserves quite a bit of credit, but how much credit? I think DOE deserves a tremendous amount of credit, but it's similar to the credit they deserve on the tracking which is a lot of jurisdictions as well, right? I mean, ultimately, they can do a ton of basic research and they can actually get products to market that actually achieve these cost reductions and all these things, but then it takes 100,000 people who are actually slaving away on the ground, getting a local permit, convincing Los Energy to do something, convincing the city council to give a permission, convincing a landowner to do this. I mean, it's all of that work married with the R&D at DOE that actually gets things done, right? So I think DOE should take a ton of credit, but then I think that when you look at some of the other technologies that you didn't mention, like thermal <coughs> heat pumps, or high efficiency triple pane windows, or all these other technologies that DOE has done a great job of, but still sitting at 1% penetration, right? You find that they have not matched their R&D with deployment professionals that are working as enthusiastically as the lighting professionals are doing with LED lighting. Yeah, but how much more progress can we make on geothermal heat pumps? Isn't it the job of people like you to figure out how to finance this stuff? Well, I think when you look at the SunTrap program, I think the SunTrap program at DOE has provided very crucial $500,000 to $1 million, million grants to companies who are trying to support people like myself and others around faster deployment, figuring out how do you do sales and marketing more efficient? How do you use the web to process 
you know, customers faster? How do you use Google Maps and that kind of stuff to like integrate where we should be selling and where we shouldn't be selling? Like all of those um, soft cost technologies are really important. And I think, you know, I I think just unequivocally the DOE's done a great job on this side. I don't want to like take anything away from them. But I'd love to see the Sunshot program actually get replicated into industrial efficiency and in, you know, like natural gas and electric buses and in all these other sectors where we're not making the same level of progress that we could be making because those technologies are also cost effective now and ready to scale up. So is this kind of a, I mean, the priorities that we're talking about here, it's, it's kind of still a hangover from the stimulus days when we went all in on shovel-ready projects and since then the priorities have been toward accelerating things that were already moving forward, like wind, solar, uh, LEDs, batteries, and it seems to be kind of a hangover of that time. Am I, am I correct in characterizing? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that there's a reason why we focus on those specific yeah. technologies. And we were able to get deployment and get things to scale that would not have made it to scale as quickly as as they did. Um, so you have this R and D pipeline that's been going for decades through yeah. DOE, and they continue to do that. And it's still really, really important, by the way, that they continue to feed that pipeline of, of basic R and D, so that by the time you get to the deployment phase and you have money that's thrown at you, for example, with the stimulus bill, which was really a jobs bill, you have technologies ready to So the other way to say it, in my opinion, is that the success of these technologies gives me the comfort to believe that we should be investing in scale in the other technologies, because we probably will get the same results. And so my hope is, is, that, is that this gives us the confidence to actually now go back through the annals of R&D projects that have been sitting on the shelf and say, hey, that one actually works, and that one works, and that one works, and we've done a pilot of that for, you know, on this military base for the last 10 years, and it's actually ready to scale. And so I feel like we should now have the confidence to go into meeting the Paris, you know, like commitments and all those things, because, you know, I think we all acknowledge that the four technologies we're talking about now are not enough to meet our rubber reduction goals, right? We actually need similar technologies to be deployed in transportation and agriculture and water and all these other sectors to get the same level of carbon reduction that we're expecting in electricity. Yeah, I think that that's what I wanted to get at in this conversation. I want people to walk away realizing the extraordinary progress that we've made in these technologies. But thinking about 80% CO2 uh, reductions by the middle of the century, you need a lot more than these four technologies. So then, in terms of DOE priorities, since we're talking about this DOE report, should they just kind of like wipe their hands and say, okay, you did a great job, now let's just focus on geothermal heat pumps and combined heat and power and uh, you know, advanced nuclear and, and all these other suite of technologies that may not get as much funding. Is it as, is, is, I mean, is that kind of what you're saying? No, I mean, well, what I'm saying is that the cost of Sunshot is literally insignificant to you. Well, the cost and of so, ERE is insignificant. Well, that's true. Like, 90% <laughs> of it's on protecting our nuclear arsenal. Right. Um, which is like, that was something I'm sure. But, but, but I think that, like, but I think that, I'm just saying that when, I, I think we should continue the R&D. Like, the money that we put out to advance nuclear designs and all that stuff, we should continue to do. But I think we're talking about $30 million being set aside into sort of a group of deployment experts that probably graduate from the Sunshine Program. 
and just make it broader and say, look, how do we deploy these technologies to scale? What are the market failures that the government might be able to like, help with? Like, are there ways for us to get standards done so that like, the finance industry is more comfortable with the quality of the work that people are doing? I mean, there's lots of these sort of soft things that only DOE can really show leadership on, so it's hard to get the industry to self-organize to do that themselves. Yeah, there are a bunch of things that I think DOE can do. One is the Federal Energy Management Program, which is government by example. So the GSA, by purchasing X brand of toilet paper, can change the market for toilet paper, right? So GSA can change the market for LED. They should stop by Georgia Pacific from the toilet paper. Discussion for another time. But yes, so um, DOE, the government can show leadership by, for example, and by test driving a lot of these technologies coming out so that that utilities are de-risked on those technologies. So that's one piece of another is enormous to promoting energy efficiency. I think you can continue to do that on these other technologies standards. And then um, and, and keep the R and D pipeline going and really just show that leadership. I think those are all really critical and just to follow up on the Federal Energy Management Program, so when Andy Carpenter, who was the Assistant Secretary under George Bush, left office in 2008, he awarded $80 billion for the Shibri SBC energy savings performance contract um, to 16 companies, so Lockheed Martin, and And the Obama administration supported less than $4 billion of that capital to making federal government more energy efficient. So there's still like $76 billion of capacity left to deploy all of these technologies within the government to save the rest of us taxpayers money on energy, whether it's electricity or transportation fuels or heating. That's like the 20th time you've mentioned that on this podcast, and I hope someone from DOE is listening to I pray that someone's listening. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is um, whether these extraordinary improvements are just going to continue no matter who. Right. We like to we like to both blame and laud presidents who think they may not have necessarily had a, a hand in. And uh, let's say Donald Trump is president. Are we past the point of no return? Are we? Are we? We're not all of a sudden just going to see these dramatic improvements uh, stop. I mean, DOE might undergo some changes. The discretionary spending might get changed around. We just might not spend money in the way that DOE wants to. You might not be able to build jobs. Uh, certainly, budgets would change, but what we're talking about here are things that are you know, uh, trends that are past the point of no return at this point. And so, much of this progress is kind of beyond the scope of, of DOE. And we're couching it in DOE because they issued this report and they've been really clear about saying this is the progress that has happened under the Obama administration. But, um, yeah, so I mean, having gone through other administrations that sort of backpedaled a little yeah. bit, um, they can change the focus of R&D significantly. So they can change it to other types of technologies. Now, industries that have already been created continue to thrive. But some of the things you might not see are, particularly alluded to this, some of the reports or modeling or um, sort of assistance that DOE can provide to our utility regulators that will help them understand how to use distributed technologies or other technologies. That, could easily dry up. And, and you need DOE to be that credible third party that can put their stamp of approval on it. That's the kind of thing that would stop. I mean, industry is going to go where the market is no matter what, right? Yeah. So. yeah, I mean, a great example of that is the Bush administration did this groundbreaking study around the integration of wind power into uh, the grid, which you know was used here in Texas by ERCOT to get all these press lines approved. And because they've been approved, um, 
negative rates on NERC have gone down because it built up smooth transmission. And they're bringing online like 7,000 megawatts of additional wind because they're able to get that done, right? And that all stemmed out of a report that the Bush administration, you know, like wanted to get under their DOE, right? And it takes 10 years <laughs> to actually get transmission built and everything else done, but that really was important. I mean, I, I do think that the other, the other thing that you find is that the vast majority of decision makers in the country on these issues, whether they're mayors or city council members, regulators or others, are just not spending more than 2% of their time on these issues. Right? Even though they are the front lines on making decisions on what buses you buy to replace your old school buses, or what like roads do you widen, or how do you take advantage of public transit, or all that stuff, they don't get elected because of their knowledge of infrastructure. They get elected based on you know whatever community church they want to protect or whatever like you know like thing they want to do in their local town or whatever it is. And so DOE like taking a proactive role and educating all these people and talking about these on the bully pulpit and, and issuing these reports, etc. Like actually give these people the tools necessary to make good decisions. And if they're not doing that actively, then it's hard to decide to do people like passively just on the website and look up some old report. Yeah, I think the bigger threat is the uncertainty that the different administrations can create in clean power plants and meeting Paris goals. And the states are going to continue to do what they want to do with RPSs and transition from that metering to value of solar, PDR, wherever they're going. The states will still have their own policies based on their goals and their needs. Yeah. So that removes DOE from that piece. And I think federally, we still have the IGC and PTC. Uh, for solar and and hopefully other technologies will be added back in. Yeah. Um, and so and so there are other federal policies, but I think the uncertainty for investors yeah. would be really destructive. Yeah, and there is one. Let me be clear. There is one candidate running for president who understands these issues. And talking with Trevor Hauser, who is Hillary Clinton's energy policy advisor, I don't think I've ever heard a presidential candidate talk or an advisor to a presidential candidate talk about net metering and rate design in such a detailed way. So this is a, an administration, who's, this is a, a candidate who's surrounding herself with people who really understand what it's going to take to deploy uh, these technologies in states um, and to you know, enable the market mechanisms that allows these, these industries to continue to grow. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's pretty remarkable to have a candidate talking about this in a pretty intellectual way. Well, it's remarkable, but it's also the largest economic engine that the United States has to offer. And in fact, if you want to get to full employment, you want to get a whole bunch of people to get really good paying jobs, like this is it. There are a lot of other areas to get that done. And so if you really want, you know, like, if you really want to make America great again, like, this is the area to do it. If you want to make infrastructure. If you want to make America great again, forget half a billion solar panels, Hillary Clinton. Focus on half a billion geothermal heat pumps and variable speed drives. And all of those <laughs> things, right? There are hundreds of technologies. But just to pick up on what Catherine was saying before, I do think that we're having this conversation really in a top-down fashion. And I think it's important to note that we have been successful on a bottom-up basis. Right? I mean, to be clear, the storage industry has been successful because they got the state of California to like pass this, this mandate. And now, you know, New York is doing some other stuff. Hawaii is doing some other stuff. And the same thing is true with the California Solar Initiative and the New York Sun program and like what Austin Energy has done here locally, and then CPS in San Antonio, and like all of this, these programs have happened in Austin specifically, right? Austin Energy wanted to rebuild that natural gas plant here, and it was like seven people who literally just kept bugging the crap out of the city council 
about the fact that we wanted that to be solar and wind instead and shut down the natural gas plant, which got that done. And yeah, they were supported by 70 other people, but those seven people were the ones who like sacrificed their time and went to every city council meeting and went to every little thing and whatever else, and that's how they got done, right? In, in a city of two million people, seven million people, seven people got that done, right? So. All right, so I want to switch gears just briefly before we move on to the next segment. We have a couple of questions up there about storage. And Catherine, you're our resident storage expert, and folks are asking like, what what needs to happen in storage to sort of bridge the gap to a more distributed renewable grid? And just putting a couple of questions up there together. And from this DOE report, the cost drops in, in storage are pretty remarkable. I mean, I think you're looking at a thousand dollars a kilowatt hour in 2010, and now. We're looking at around two hundred dollars a kilowatt hour. We'll pretty soon be reaching hundred dollars a kilowatt hour. Just for the battery. Just for the battery, right? Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, this is like you see with conventional crystalline silicon PV. We're going to see conventional lithium-ion batteries really dominate the space, for better or worse. Um, but a lot of people say storage isn't ready for prime time yet, and I think that we're seeing market signals that show uh, both in pricing and cost trends and actual deployment, but that is not necessarily the case anymore. No, it's not the case. Um, and so a couple things. One is I think one thing DOE could do is like a sunshine program for batteries, a battery shop program to start working on the soft costs. Because it's Energy not a shop program. program. Yeah, that's good. Um, you've heard it first here. Um, so, and, and then like really focus on how do we make all these systems work well together costs holistically on the battery front or on the storage front, I would say that having state procurement targets are a really big deal. So California created this entire ecosystem, has hundreds and hundreds of deployments, um, everything from small scale to large utility scale because of a target that they set. Massachusetts is going to set a target. New York is probably going to have to set a target because red is confusing. Um, but all these states that set targets, really they create certainty. So the investors come, they create the ecosystem of industry, and then they start deploying it. And what happens when you start deploying is then you start figuring things out. And how are you able to aggregate, how are you able to work the system together so that solar can be part of part of it as well. But storage is definitely out there and it's being deployed today. Yeah, and it, and it really comes back to system design at this point. I mean, absolutely we see continued improvements in, in technology, but you know, we need to see wholesale market design accommodate companies that are trying to aggregate all these batteries together and provide grid services. Well, yeah, so you definitely need you definitely need, need the market structure set up, to and that is coming together. Yeah. You know, and, and and these pieces are absolutely starting to to fit together. Well, I don't know that that's true. I mean, Why is that not it's true? Value, it's value instead of cost, right? So we focus on cost. Well, like in Texas, right? They have a noble price. So like they actually price the power at each individual node and say this is node is congested, you're paying twice as much for that power there than you are down the street, right? So now once you know that it's twice as much there, you know that you can put a battery there and actually solve that congestion. And get, but who exactly is going to pay for it? Is it because Texas is deregulated in three different groups, right? You have the retailing providers who aren't going to pay for crap, and then you've got like you know the generators who also aren't going to pay for crap. And then you got Encore in the middle, right? Like in others that are doing just transmission. And so, unless they say, here's a contract for you, if you put that battery there, I'm going to pay you this much every month for those services, how the hell am I going to do that, right? Like, I, I can describe it until I'm blue in the face that there's, a, there's an ability for me to, like, 
help Con Ed in New York, or the folks in Texas, or the folks in Massachusetts that I can do this and I can do that with this battery. But I need somebody on the other side to say, yes, that makes complete sense. Here's a contract to pay you. Yeah, you need to be able to do PPAs, or you need to be able to build delivery based and have facilities on it, or you need to be able to have, um, and I think even beyond batteries, you need to be able to have all sorts of procurements so that you're actually procuring a set of services that meet certain criteria and they're your value for the services that you provide. Right. And it could be a battery, it could be demand response, efficiency, solar, whatever you have. But that's not on track. I mean, to be clear, like California is just like, here's a bunch of subsidies out of the SGIP rebate program. Right? Just don't worry about it. We'll take care of that later. But if I went to Southern California Edison and said, I'm putting a battery in the basement of that building, are you just going to give me a standard offer? The answer is maybe. I don't think so, but maybe. Like they have this new sort of RFP they're doing, and they're paying like, you know, AMS and STEM and others for this type of service in the LA region. But it's not universal, right? And so it's not an open market for us to just, as entrepreneurs, say, I just found a Western Hotel that wants to do this. We can't just pay. snap our fingers and overnight have this happen. These oh, no, states are actually making No, but that's progress. how this actually happens. Like, no, it's not how like, it actually No, no, Janice, no, like Janice you know, like, in, in, in California goes to Sacramento and, like, you know, lobbies the crap out of somebody, and the Public Service Commission passes a law that directs the utility companies to create a tariff that pays us for this. That is how it happens. And we are not on track to getting that done. Right now, we're on track to putting out. $200 million in subsidies in the state of California or behind the meter batteries and you know people getting demand charges. No, but actually for in the situation at Aliso Canyon, they did they they solved a specific issue in a location mm -hmm. that needed peak power and they used batteries to do it. So right. But that's, that's like you say the middle issue. That is local capacity requirements. And I think that's that's how we can yeah. we can set up all kinds of incentive programs to deploy and, and targets to deploy technologies, and in the end, they're going to be solved very regionally locally. I completely agree, but I didn't meet that permission in solar. If I wanted to go to Fresno that didn't have a problem and put in solar, I just said, hey, are you paying 15 cents a kilowatt hour? Yes, I'll just send a deal to Walmart directly and go route, and I don't have to ask the utility permission. I just did a deal. Now, if you want to do a deal with Fresno, you got to like ask the utility and say, please pay attention to me. Would you please like pay me for the same? And here's my report that shows that I'm providing value to you. And it's, I mean, it's a lot of work, and it's not clear that entrepreneurs want to put that much work into it without a staring All right, as usual, we've got deep into the weeds on that one, which is great. But quick thoughts before we move on to the next one, and there are a couple of relevant questions up there to our next uh, segment. Just how should people feel about this DOE report? Like looking at these dramatic cost drops, should we? How positive should we be feeling about where we are in the energy transition? What should they walk away from? This is now unequivocally the largest wealth creation opportunity of generation. And if you want a job, this is the this is the industry you should be targeting, right? Like as Dustin Hoffman said, a graduate, like plastics, <laughs> right? This is plastics. If you want a job on UT or other places, like you better be looking at this industry sector. Because writ large, we're hiring more people than every other industry. Yeah, and DOE is a cool place to work. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if Trump comes in, we'll see if they can actually fill those jobs. Okay, what happens after the war on coal? A lot of people you know, say we're not in a war on coal. We're in a war on coal. We want to secure energy. Yeah, exactly. Look, there's a political conversation and there's a reality. But 
you know, we talked about the declining costs for leading technologies. Now we're going to talk about the decline of coal, which is an important piece of the other side of the um, conversation here. In 2008, coal made up 48% of electricity generation in this country. This year it's hovering around 29%. This is Obama's America. With natural gas prices still at record lows and renewables on a downward trajectory, there's really nowhere else for coal to go with them, right? And the question is, what happens next? So this is where a guy like Ken Bowe comes in. If you watched the town hall presidential debate on Sunday night, you saw the red sweatered man who became an internet sensation ask a simple question. How are the candidates going to meet America's energy needs and protect the environment while minimizing job losses for fossil plant workers? And that is the right question to ask. Because this shift is coming, we can all see it, and we've got to make sure it touches everyone in a positive way. Like Ken Bone touched all our hearts on Sunday. Uh, Catherine, you come from a cold state. We all sit here. <laughs> we all sit here, believers, that uh, an abrupt shift away from the dirtiest fossil fuels is necessary. But I'm curious, what would you say if you were up on that stage on Sunday night to to at Ken Bone 18, yeah, exactly. just in case anybody want to follow me. No, seriously, what would you say? Because it's a very yeah. legitimate question, right? Yeah. I work for a coal plant. I want to see us meet America's energy needs in an environmentally friendly way. How are you going to protect my job? Yeah, so your question. job may not actually be protected. And I bet your and Hillary Clinton already your said CEO, that. She got yeah, your trouble CEO is also not protecting your job. Right. So there are a couple things. One thing is, yes, she has like a thirty billion dollar plan to actually give these people what they're due in benefits because a lot of these guys that are out of jobs. Sixty billion dollar plan. It was thirty billion of on the business on the benefits okay. side. Alone. Um, but yeah, she has a huge double that just for trying to retrain, trying to find new industries for these folks. And I mean, in southwestern Virginia, uh, Apple, there are no really no coal jobs. It's like they don't exist anymore. It's not that they are getting run out of town. And they've been just declining since the mid 80s yeah. because of automation. Yeah, and yet they all, well, most of those folks have homes, so they have places to put solar. I think solar would be a great industry to bring in down there. My brother was able to build a solar plant at a college down there as an energy manager in Appalachia. And you know, you're able to really retrain people, and they're doing this in West Virginia as well. So, and I'm sure that this is the case in Kentucky and elsewhere in Appalachia, but you really do need to bring them something else. That's their livelihood. They're not going to move. They shouldn't have to move. This is their land. This is their state. This is where they were brought up and live. And yet, there are other industries that can come in that can change the game for them. I mean, their own industry, it's, this is not Obama that's doing it. This is the natural gas crisis. Yeah. It's also the fact that advocacy, so the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign, and I've talked to those folks a lot about this, um, advocacy is really hard to model, the impact of advocacy. So folks like Goldman Sachs haven't been really been able to capture what, what does that mean for the coal industry. But this is advocacy not jumping up and down with signs saying close the plant. This is holding plant managers to Clean Water Act requirements, to Clean Air Act requirements, so that their workers are actually safe. And if, if they can't afford to do that and their workers die in incidents because they don't care about safety, that is the that is the CEOs actually killing their own industry. And if they can't afford to put those protections in place, then they're going to go out of business and they are going out of business. That's not the workers' fault at all. 
the workers are doing. Well, the workers are caught in the middle of this because Absolutely. you know you have politicians that are being honest and saying, "Hey, we're going to see some pretty major job losses. This is a trend that's been going on since the mid '80s, uh, being accelerated because of low natural gas and renewable energy prices." But we're going to have to figure a way out a way to transition these workers. Meanwhile, you have people claiming there's a war on coal, and many of the leading Republicans who are who are leading that rhetorical battle are fighting protections for workers. For, who are facing black lung disease. We're not even supported by the National Union um, Mine Workers Associations. Like, there's a real disconnect in the conversation here. And yeah. And power plants, right? So yeah. Well, clear. well there's mean, a difference between mines and power plants, for sure. I mean, look, I, I just want to be very, like, I do think that the reason Trump is being so successful right now is because Bill Clinton screwed this up. And, and How? So, because he went to people that were in my hometown that I grew up in Illinois, who just lost their job at a steel mill, and said, your job's not coming back, I'm gonna retrain you. And he never did. And all those people are still making 15 bucks an hour that they were making when they graduated from high school, and they're pissed, because they're like, I'm 42 right now, and I'm making 15 bucks an hour, and I can't send my kids to college, right? And so, there's a reason why, like, why these people are pissed, and why we have to do better than just throwing $30 billion and retraining oh, guys. Because that didn't work the first time around or the second time around or the fifth time. So like, let's just be clear about that. But I, look, I think that, like, when I was here three years ago with Brian Fire and Oregon and stuff like South Pacifico, I said that coal was an abomination, right? And it needed to die. And it needed to die for a reason, right? I mean, the reason pregnant women can't eat fish is because of coal, right? Mercury gets into fish and then you can't eat it because it hurts the baby. It's not because people are like breaking thermometers and sticking mercury into the into the rivers, right? So like coal actually has real health impacts. People die because of coal, right? The American Lung Association estimates that like you know seventy thousand people die a year from coal, and there are billions upon billions of dollars. The National Academy of Sciences says that fossil fuels actually creates like three hundred billion dollars of real health care healthcare costs to Medicare every year. So these are not like small numbers, and we do as a society have to deal with these externalities that coal creates, right? So like I don't want to mince words and be soft about this stuff, etc. Those plants need to die because people are dying because of those plants, right? So that is how this goes, right? And but I do think that we all have to be more thoughtful and less sort of just we're going to throw money at the problem around what to do with these people who have had multi generational. Um, ties to these communities, whether they're mining communities or coal, you know, power plant communities, and figuring out how to transfer them. And I, I disagree with Catherine around movement. I mean, I'm an immigrant, and my dad, like, lost his job in one place, and he, he moved us to a rural community where he had a job. I do find it fascinating in the United States of America, where you don't need a passport to actually move the next day to some other place, that people don't move. They're like, oh, no, I really want to be here. Well, we have 19% employment. You should move. No, but I've been here for like three generations or whatever. Like, us immigrant families don't do that. Right? Like, we like move. Like, we need a job. We move. We get a job. And I do think that it might be better served for the Obama administration or the Clinton administration in the future to take that $30 billion and give these people a bus ticket and actually say, here's $5,000 to move your family across the country to where there's actually jobs. And you're not going to get killed by the local economy. Bigger shots, Secretary of Labor. Here's a really good piece in the New Yorker about 
about West Virginia, specifically in the county of West Virginia, it really does talk about white people's justice and white people really value the land that they own. They can't buy it, you know, so they own it, they've lived there for generations. I think that's awesome. Well, this is, and this is, and you're pretending that, like, you always criticize me for saying you're being too rational about the issue. You're being too rational about the issue. This is an identity issue. I'm not being this rational. This is not about someone issue. saying like, okay, you know, I'm really just. said a long time this ago. Is, this is about right? identity. This is not about whether someone can just up and leave their family. Like, I'm not saying this is easy. I'm saying what Einstein said was that basically that like that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Right, so what are you going to do that's different? You're going to train them to be like something else than we trained them in the 90s? I'm telling you that all the people who live in Sterling, Illinois, where I'm from, like, actually just needed to move. Right, those people, where after I graduated from high school, the seventh largest steel mill in the country, shut down. There were no jobs there for those people, right? Like, you could buy a house there still for $48,000, right? So a lot of people from Chicago are selling their house for $700,000. Retiring in Sterling two and a half hours away, and there's no there's no job for those people that pay more than fifty bucks an hour. They need to move. No, but you look at some place like Pittsburgh that has really had a revitalization. It's a very green Pittsburgh city. Pittsburgh is now. a city. I mean, Sterling, right. Illinois has eleven thousand eight hundred people living there. That is not a city. They are not going to attract like IT jobs. They're not going to have a data center. They're not going to have all that stuff there, right? Pittsburgh is a a lively city that has like fourteen high net worth individuals who like fund art projects and fund all these things to revitalize the city. There's no concern to do that. Well, I think we need to bring back your lives. That's my answer. Maybe, but I'm just, all I'm saying is that like, I'm I'm tired of like pulling punches and saying, these people don't want to move, and therefore we should like figure out how to fix Detroit, or fix this place, or fix that place. In Ohio, think about all those cities and towns where they lost their main employer in the 80s, and people are still living there with 19% employment. Why the hell are you still living there? Boom. <laughs> There's a great burning question up here in that I think we need to answer, and that's whether or not the jobs that we're seeing in wind and solar, in particular, energy efficiency, can make up for these lost jobs. Because, you know, we have, what, 206,000 jobs in solar alone in this country, really remarkable, more than in oil and gas drilling. Um, far more than in coal mining, and more than the steel industry. That is an important story to tell, but there are also innovations underway in the solar industry. Um, you know, better racking, better installation techniques, uh, improvements in manufacturing, automation that's taking over every industry. It is gonna, you know, eventually we're gonna start shedding jobs in those sectors as well. And the question is, um, on balance, can these fat high growth industries that are just exploding actually make up for um, the jobs that we're losing in coal and, and in oil and gas as well at the moment? Well, I mean, you still have infrastructure you have to support. So it's not like you're just going to have like a bunch of wireless electricity or everything's going to be done magically. I mean, you still have to have people working on wires and still people producing things and building things. And I think that's one thing that, um, especially the, the Clinton. Campaign is talking about is infrastructure and trying to make, because there's a system that supports all of these technologies. So trying to make sure that th th that's going to be a job producer is um, being able to improve infrastructure and improve systems. And I don't think those jobs. Are, I think those are. Well, we have plenty of jobs, but I think it's the, the problem with this is that from a macroeconomic point of view, it's one to one. 
Right, we're definitely creating more jobs than we're losing in, in we're, we're creating more jobs in the greatest wealth creation opportunity on the planet versus, you know, like coal and all these other industries. That being said, they're not one to one. These people losing jobs on this side are not going to get retrained to work in this field. They could technically be retrained to work in this field. There are programs that the Solar Foundation and other folks are working on to actually like retrain these people to work in these areas. But that may not actually happen. We may just hire other people in our industry, and then these people are going to lose their job. And on a macro basis, yeah, they canceled each other out. But on a micro basis, these guys are pissed off because they don't have a job anymore. And and I do think that you know, like we just have to figure out what to do, particularly if you're 40 years old. You know, like I've been working in this industry for 20 years. You know, and I don't want to get retrained. I don't know how to do this stuff. I mean, pack up your car, go to the other side of the country, and get a new job. Get a new job. I completely agree. That's why you have Indeed out of Austin that's getting all these people jobs. I mean, you know, it's one of those things, but I do think that we have a problem. Like, I just think that, you know, the solar industry and industry in particular, if you're very well trained out of the fossil industry, literally six or eight weeks after you come on board, you can be fully up and running and productive in the workforce because the training is so good in the fossil fuel industry, we only need another six to eight weeks of training to get them up to speed. Um, but it doesn't mean that like it's gonna happen. It's just not like one to one. It's really hard to see how these government programs are gonna be intentional about really getting people really down there. Well there's another issue in the solar industry and that is post financial crisis, post housing crisis, you had a lot of people in the construction industry who moved over into solar and now all of a sudden uh, markets are picking back up and they can get better jobs in the construction industry elsewhere. So that's that's an issue that the industry has to deal with. That's why we're paying so well. That's why the solar industry is up to 21 bucks an hour because we got to pay really well to paying good talent. Oh, yeah. The fact that we pay so well in the industry. Um, so there's a question up there about carbon pricing, which kind of dovetails with the question that I had about um, whether a draconian top down measure of just shutting down coal plants and paying for health insurance and pensions and retraining programs in a major way makes sense. So uh, I think we're starting to see people take uh, carbon tax a little bit more seriously, maybe not, you know. A few prominent Republicans for the last year, two years have been floating a carbon tax around, probably won't go anywhere. But that brings us into a larger conversation. If we are going to get serious on, on um, phasing out coal, does a moderate carbon tax even work? Should we just be saying the federal government should just pay a trillion dollars to shut down these coal mines and coal plants and figure out a way to retrain these workers and pay for all their benefits? Uh, like I'd love to get your idea. I mean, these are very serious ideas that have been added already. If I had a trillion dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, but they're getting more traction. People are actually well, getting more serious. And, and, and in the next eight years, we're going to have to start really talking about it. We're not going to shut down coal plants and shut down Right, that's not how it works. You like type the news from EPA or places. You know, some of them make it through, some of them don't. But right. But ultimately, I do think we're going to have a price in carbon. I do think we're going to have to carbon. And I think the trade, as I talked about before, is going to be the trade is going to be the thing powerful. If it survives the Supreme Court challenge, Republicans are going to say, if if we can strip EPA of the power to regulate CO two, we'll accept the carbon tax, and that will be the trade. And I think they will sign it all day long. Because they're way more afraid of the EPA and the uncertain tightening of clean power plan 1.0, the 2.0, the 3.0, the 4.0. If they strip EPA of that power, I think they would absolutely put a carbon tax in that is now regulated by the Congress because they believe they have more control than the Congress or the EPA. Do you think that's a possibility? 
Yeah, exactly. Honestly, like you need. There's no trade, like direct trade out there. That's what they want. Oh, yeah. that's what they totally want. That is. They want. I mean, that that is their price. So and I think Hillary will cut that deal. Who will cut that deal? I think Hillary will absolutely cut that deal. I will guarantee. Well, Hillary has been very careful about talking about a carbon tax. It wasn't her caucus saw that that happened. Yeah. I I think you need you need a policy that you know will work, and I'm not sure we know exactly what that looks like. I think um, we know what cap and trade might look like. We don't exactly know how it would spin out. It's not cap and trade, it's cap and dividend. And I think that if you want $30 billion to help coal communities, this so is exactly how you do it. You put a carbon tax on at $36 a ton, right. you give everybody a dividend check of X dollars, and you take 25% of all the net proceeds and you give them to like coal communities and yeah. pensions and all that So that's the theory. So you need, so you need a policy that you know will work. Yeah. Um, that will do even more than what the current policy and regulation is. I mean, it is hard to give up on regulation that is stood up by the Clean Air Act. I, I honestly don't know how you do that because the second thing you need is a political pathway to get it done. And I don't, I don't think right now that you have it. Yeah. I think you're going to find people who are not willing. The environmental community is certainly not going to be willing to give up. On the tax credit that was like a teeny tiny thing. They, this it's is, not teeny tiny. This is the entire Clean Air Act. We, no, no, I just know. stripping the carbon dioxide regulation out of the Clean Air Act. And we, they did roll over on the oil export ban. They were completely anti-oil export ban, and we rolled. And, but, but, I mean, you please comment on this, because you know these folks better than I do. But I feel like the people who are actually pushing a carbon tax, the sort of moderate libertarians, don't have much sway in the Republican Party right now. I mean, this last way, this is, this. it's not moderate libertarian. Yeah, but like people like Eli Lehrer of the R Street to no, those guys are irrelevant. I'm talking about, they, they once had the year of the Republican Party, right. No, 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 people are, in the Cato Institute no, no. once. These are people who are so afraid of EPA and what they might do in the future. But I'm not asking if they're afraid of EPA. I'm saying they once had the ear of the Republican Party more than they do today. So. Yeah, I think a lot of this depends on the election and how it shakes out and what the numbers look like. Because right now, the Freedom Caucus has the House Republicans in the Stranglehold. Yeah. It's shut down everything. Right. They can't, nobody can get anything done. But it's like Chaffetz that wants to do this, right? This is Freedom Caucus people. Because yeah. they hate EPA. And they didn't even go back to their base and say, hey, you took this piece out of EPA, you reduce government regulation. And in exchange, we got a carbon tax. And that's tricky because the public likes EPA. The public actually, when you ask them, do you hear about your water in the air? Well, if and when Hillary Clinton becomes president, she is going to be grappling with this issue in a major way. And given, you know, decades-long experience with kind of shoddy government retraining programs, I think we're going to have to rethink this this whole process, and it's going to be a pretty serious challenge. So I'll be interested to see how that that plays out. And well, the courts are going to make a big decision too. Before she right, right. Steps in. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think a lot of people outside of hardcore climate circles are taking seriously the idea that we need to leave the vast majority of fossil fuels in the ground. But my my, I think that in the next five years, more people will start taking that seriously. So that'll kind of work its way into the presidential conversation. Uh, a random question up there before we end on autonomous vehicles. How do you make clean energy sexy? Well, that's like we're the only thing I can see right? right there. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't look at this. <laughs> <laughs> this is a I've very good show. I've never seen you guys
Okay. <laughs> I mean, maybe if they ask, how do you make art success? There's this great video that you can search for that came out in 2005 2006, 2006 when YouTube first launched of a naked man in the middle of the desert with a solar panel over him dancing and said, solar is sexy. And it was, it was, uh, still out there somewhere. It's a very it's obscure so video. Disturbing that you, that it is, I love that. It's, it's perfect. I highly recommend anyone to go pick it up. No, no, no. I'll, 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 I'll be honest with you, like, look, I mean, there's a little Business Week magazine this week and, like, page 10 or whatever had this article around, you know, this wind in the corner. I actually hear the title of the piece, but, um, what they were talking about was that now on an annual basis, the wind energy industry provides $900 million a year in rent payments to landowners. And there are entire parts of the country now where farmers are actually saving their farms because of these payments, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I find that quite sexy, right? And I think the same thing is happening with solar and the same thing is happening in many other places. And so, like, I think that. We are an industry where people can actually have a career. Where you can come in out of college and expect to work in this industry for the next 40 years. That is not something that people have the opportunity to do these days. Most people are changing entire careers in terms of the industry sector they work in, like every six or seven years. Right? You have the ability to jump around here for storage, solar, wind, whatever. You're still in the same industry sector. Yeah, my right? son is getting into it, and then it does on me. It's I just, not I like I want to be like my mom. That's not it. I find that highly attractive. And let's not forget that Chuck Grassley, the grandfather of wind, is the sexiest guy in the Congress. Oh, Instagram, Chuck oh. Grassley, man. Okay, autonomous vehicles. So in 1899, the New York Times reported on a deadly problem. Cars, it wrote, were a serious risk to life and limb. More than a quarter century, more than a century later, cars are a lot safer, of course, but more than 35,000 people still die each year in automobile accidents in the U.S. alone. Factoring the legacy impacts of leaded gasoline and the impact of emissions on developmental health near high traffic areas, we're talking about a health and safety problem that reaches millions. Are autonomous electrified vehicles coming to save us all while preserving what we love about the convenience of car culture? This fall, the Department of Transportation released guidelines for autonomous vehicles that could accelerate the technology. And meanwhile, almost every major automaker and tech company is working on autonomy and electrification in tandem. There, these are clear signs that something big is, is going on in mobility. Um, a couple, a few years ago, the three of us actually spent a day at this Department of Transportation workshop where they were talking a lot about autonomy. And I came away from that conversation um, you know, pretty optimistic that they were grappling with this in a detailed way, but I thought, oh, 10 years from now, they're going to issue some guidelines. And sure enough, three years later, they issued some fairly detailed but flexible guidelines on what the next steps are, how we should balance federal and state regulations that the automakers really seem to like. You know, they're trying to get out ahead of this. And I was pretty impressed with that, with that turnaround. And that's something that you haven't seen in, in other sectors. Um, so first, Catherine, to you on this one, because you're kind of our eyes and ears in DC, you're following all the different policy developments. I would argue that this is one of the most important policy developments for clean tech in 2016, and it kind of flew under the radar. Yeah, and just something I want to clarify is that cars aren't dangerous, people who drive cars. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Um, exactly. Yeah, this is a totally different approach. Um, this is really getting in front and trying to create a space for innovation because you don't really know which direction this is going to go, so to speak. Um, this is really being, a, a, it's very proactive, it's very cooperative, this set of regulation, and it's really, it's really saying, rather than having a few regulation, we're going to set a direction, and you have to make sort of 15 safety points, and, and then let's work together with the industry, rather than waiting for like, post-sale enforcement, let's get ahead of it and try to bring everybody to the table and say, what's coming up? And I think that's just a different approach to regulation generally, is trying to get out in front of it and make room for innovation because you don't really know which direction it's going to go, and yet it's happening. And they say that in this, in these, this set of guidelines. Okay. I mean, they're very clear. The political space was created because they got screwed on drones, right? Because they took three screwed years. Screwed on drones, Yeah, because they put out um, guidance that was like three years too late. The drone technology had already changed radically, so their guidance and the regulations were completely out of date. And so they said, "Well, we don't want to do that again. We should actually like take another approach." And they did that with autonomous vehicles. It was really, really strong. There's an interesting component to this that I think. Uh, well, there's there's going to be a lot to grapple with. There's going to be you know evolution of insurance policy, um, what states are allowed to do versus what the federal government does, whether this becomes a legislative issue. Um, uh, but the big, you know, there, there's a, a detail in here about data sharing. And now the feds say they want access, they basically like want a black box or the equivalent to like an airline crash. So anytime there's a crash, they get access to this data on how the, the road conditions and how the automobile was operating. And um, this is potentially like a really important thing for us all to understand what's happening on the roads, but a very murky area because the third party autonomous car operators don't want to share that data, there's privacy concerns, there's competition concerns. Do uh, you think that the companies, the regulators will win that battle? The regulators will win that battle, the companies will lose that battle. I mean, why do you think that? Because I mean, like, the whole point of autonomous vehicles is the fact that people don't actually want to drive their cars, they'd rather eat or be on the phone or put on makeup or, or whatever, shave or whatever they want to do other than drive their car. So everybody wants to do this, but ultimately, um, if you're going to save seventy billion dollars, basically in in wrongful death costs, right? Then on the other side, and you know the was it NHTSA or whatever, NHTSA has to be able to figure out when a death occurs because of autonomous driving, right? Like what happened, right? That's the only way that you're going to gain consumer trust. If you don't have the government doing detailed investigations every time something happens. Then people are going to be like, wait a second, do I want to trust my family and, you know, like to an auto, uh, autonomous vehicle, right? And like, and those private companies need consumer trust more than they care about protecting their data. Yeah, and that's what Tesla's been able to do, because when they sell a car, they are able to track you and collect all of that data and manage it. And so when incidents have happened, with the autonomous piece of what they call that. Yeah, they release yet, that data. Then they have all of that information that right. what exactly right. happened. I think Tesla did a pretty good job after that accident where the, you know, the driver drove into the tractor trailer. I mean, they were very open about what happened. They released the data, they worked with regulators, and I think there's still an investigation ongoing. But uh, early on in this process, when one major problem can derail public perception, they seem to do a pretty good job of controlling the situation and explaining exactly what happened. Yeah, and then you can self-correct the next time you do the algorithm. But that's, and, and they did it right, but that's why 
like you know, the government has to win this battle because ultimately, like, if the next car company doesn't want to share the data, right, then you know it hurts the entire industry, yeah. right? Because people start losing trust in the technology, and then you know we're stuck having to drive our cars. Again. Yeah, and there's a there was a question up there about uh, cellulosic ethanol, like what happened to biofuels, and I think that does kind of feed into this conversation. I almost feel like. We can look back on the failures in biofuels and say, well, who cares? Now we've got electrification of transportation that's finally starting to take off. We have a pathway toward autonomous fleets of vehicles. We have companies that are starting to figure out the business models. Do we even really care that biofuels are a big failure? I mean, I know we have aviation and, and, and military applications and we can't just sweep biofuels aside, but when it comes to personal transport, um, I feel like we're in a completely different realm now, and you can look back on those biofuel failures and say, like, maybe it didn't matter as much as we thought it Well, any comments on that? Not about it didn't matter. I mean, look, cellulosic biofuels are damn hard, and it has failed, right? There's no other way to say it, yeah, right? Like, it's failed. Now, could they succeed over the next 20 years? Could there be another breakthrough that occurs? Of course there could be. But, you know, like, Bailey Barber's not happy in Mississippi that he put all that money into Keyword. And you know, other folks aren't happy with the investments they've made in biofuels, right? So we are where we are now. OMB and you know, and EPA are saying we're going to like reduce the total amount of credits that the oil companies have to buy in cellulosic part of the renewable fuel standard because we don't believe that those that the volume of cellulosic product that was mandated by the RFS will materialize, right? So we are where we are, and I think everyone around the table is like, this is there's no inevitability to cellulosic, so everyone's jumping on the electric vehicle bandwagon and being like, well, let's go this direction now instead. And so that's where we're headed. But like you said, I mean, we're still going to need liquid fuels for aviation and other, other, you know, sort of efforts. Yeah, I mean, and the oil companies worked really hard to make sure that they could kill all that stuff. And now they, they see a threat in EVs, and the Koch brothers are promising like a $10 million a year effort to, to kill EVs again. So they're stepping up. The politics uh, yeah, but then you have all the major auto manufacturers yeah. <laughs> who, are, who are clearly embracing this. And you, I'm just saying, like, what feeds up it, everybody in the world, and then decides to go all in on EVs, you know you want. Coke don't have a run to stand on this. You have all the major, major auto manufacturers who, see, who are pushing for these regulations, who are developing multiple models of EVs, and who are very clear about the future well, of Germany, this sector. I do not think that the Coke brothers have a campaign that will succeed. But Germany's lower house just passed a law that said that we're going to ban internal combustion engines in Germany. Yeah, I saw that. It's, it's incredible. It's not the law of the land yet, yeah. but that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, incredibly, we're already an hour into the show. I can't believe it. So we're going to have to start wrapping up. It's really remarkable. There were just a couple of things that I wanted to mention on autonomous vehicles that we didn't really get to. Um, the most important, well, the most important thing is to reduce costs, right? Uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance came out with some really interesting stats on the reduced cost of uh, driving a vehicle per mile, and right now a human-driven taxi costs two seventy-six a mile, and will be that way about by twenty twenty-five. And the self-driving taxis, you know, electrified taxis, it could be sixty-seven cents a mile to operate. And then oh, also, also show, oh, sorry. And I'll, I was just going to say also, the forty percent of the cost of the car is batteries, and the battery right. costs come exactly. Out. Exactly. But I think I think you're going to see a response to that. Uh, local jurisdictions tax the crap out of them. 
Because yeah, well, this is a whole another because you're, issue. I mean, well, you yeah. need to make sure that that revenue still comes in and maintain roads and all the other things. Yeah, but on top of that, like you don't want the rebound. I don't want people driving three times more vehicle miles traveled because now it's so much cheaper to, to travel, right? And so you want to make sure that the economics on this like continues to make people want to consolidate trips and yeah. they do all the right things on the road to Paris. We're going to go through a really strange transition where people are going to own a lot of their own cars. We're going to have some autonomous car fleets on the road. And, you know, you know the, un the environmental benefits will be questionable, but I think once we get through that strange transition period, it will be an environmental benefit. But that's still like, <laughs> way open for debate. It could go. All right, I could go on and on about this, but we do have to wrap it up. And uh, we usually finish the show by telling you something you may not know stuff from our daily work lives, stuff from the news stories that we're reading. And Catherine, what's, what's yours this week? Yeah, so last week, um, Public Interior released a study um, in the journal Ecosphere that showed the impact of, on climate change in national parks. 75% uh, of national parks have been impacted by climate change. What they did was they measured from 1901 to 2012 um, a set of, of 276 out of the 413 parks, and they found that 75% of them get an earlier spring, and 50% get a much, much earlier spring. And what this does, an early spring not only throws off you know, the birds and butterflies and how they interact with all of these different species, but it also creates an environment that additional really invasive and harmful species can come in. And I know in the Shenandoah Park, um, which is near and dear to my heart, there are 41 new species that are very invasive that are that are now blooming that were not there before, and that's directly because of climate change. So I would check out that report. Jigger? So I was just randomly uh, looking up windows today. And um, Microsoft? No, sorry. Like, <laughs> real windows on your uh, on your house. Although there is a great joke about that on LinkedIn. But um, um, but uh, they were saying that buying brand new windows costs between thirty five and fifty dollars a square foot installed. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, the cost of solar now on a Walmart store is between twenty dollars and thirty dollars a square foot. So solar fully installed now on a per square foot basis is cheaper than windows. Yeah, it's incredible. I love that stat. And then I've got another good solar stat. Uh, Julia Piper, one of our uh, wonderful writers, she's now an editor of, of the site, uh, she pointed out that homeowners, uh, Republican homeowners in California are five times more likely to have solar on the roofs than Democratic ones. And there are regional, wow. regional variability. Geography is the biggest factor because more Republicans live in the southeastern part of the state. Um, but surprisingly, income was not the biggest factor. Um, we had the same, so we, did, we, we learned the same thing when I was at BP in 2003. Yeah, like, look, it's, it's, it's incredible. And then OBIA came out with a stat a couple years ago that showed that 81% of wind installed around the US was in Republican districts. So this is a powerful story. And then I also want to just give a shout out to the Solar Foundation, Andrew's in the back of the room. We cited some of their uh, work on solar jobs and we're well, well over 200,000 jobs in this industry. And I think looking at the Solar Foundation's work on um, where jobs are across this country is really powerful. And you'll, it's important for us to recognize that this is an industry that is already here, is growing very quickly, and is rivaling other major industries that um, you know we 
that we hold dear in this country. So uh, make sure you check out the Solar Foundation's uh, numbers as well. So that, that wraps up the show. Thanks for being here, everyone. We really appreciate it. Uh,